From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Simone Biles threw a spotlight on mental health with her decision to withdraw from some Olympic gymnastics competitions. Carrie Bates is thankful. She won three Olympic gold medals in swimming in 1984. People are starting to really understand that mental health is not a separate discussion to health in general or physical health. It's all part of our overall well-being. A conversation about the pressure on elite athletes. Plus, we continue to hear the ways the I-70 shutdown in Glenwood Canyon is affecting people, like a kid getting to college. We're already planning, I think, to take the northern route through Steamboat Springs. Then CPR's Allison Sherry on her investigation into if the state's new law enforcement reform bill is making a difference. The whole bill has just brought more awareness about misconduct across the whole criminal justice system. Local, national, and international reporting from NPR and Colorado Public Radio has a long history of holding the powerful to account by addressing false narratives with verified facts. Philanthropic support makes this kind of reporting possible, and it strengthens our ability to deliver trustworthy, fact-based journalism essential to our democracy. Explore all ways to give and make your gift on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Elite athletes can drive conversations far beyond the sports world. And at the Olympics, Simone Biles has thrown a bright spotlight on mental health. Biles has won every gymnastics all-around competition she's entered since she was 16. But the 24-year-old Olympian pulled out of multiple competitions last week to focus on her mental well-being. She said she's dealing with the twisties. That's a condition where gymnasts essentially feel lost as they're twisting through the air. She finished her Tokyo Olympics Tuesday on the balance beam where she took twists out of her routine. She won the bronze for that performance. Afterwards, she said, mental and physical health is better than any medal. Here's Biles. The topic of mental health, I think it should be talked about a lot more, especially with athletes, because I know some of us are going through the same things and we're always told to push through it. Her very public ordeal has a lot of people talking, and largely her teammates, other athletes, USA Gymnastics, and fans have applauded her decision. Carrie Bates is one of those Olympians who's encouraged by Biles. Bates won three Olympic gold medals in 1984 Olympics. She said during her career, conversations about mental well-being stopped at tough it out. The pressure to perform is intense, especially when many of our careers are decided on a hundredth of a second or the move of a toe or a step out of bounds. But I think what resonates with me most about all the discussions around Simone Biles and the Olympics themselves is just the real transparency of some of these athletes that are using their platforms on a global scale. By her coming forward during the Olympics, Michael Phelps has come forward and been very um, transparent about his mental health challenges as well as Naomi Osaka, the tennis player who backed out of the French Open, citing mental health challenges. So we are hearing more about it because athletes are using their voices to really say it's okay to not be okay. We'll hear more of Bates' story in a moment. Renee Evertez joins me now. She's a doctor of psychology, and she was the team psychologist for the Denver Broncos from 2017 to 2020. Renee Evertez, welcome. Uh, Thank you, uh, Avery, for having me. 
As a psychologist, when you heard that one of the most talked about Olympians was pulling out of competitions and citing mental health, what was going through your mind? Well, I, I really want to champion the cause of um, speaking out about mental health wellness. And and I was most impressed by the fact that um, uh, high-profile athletes are now addressing this. Um, I think what it does is it destigmatizes and raises awareness of mental health and being okay about accessing um, services for mental health. And you've been thinking about elite athletes' mental health long before the Tokyo Olympics. Are there through lines in what you're hearing from Biles and other Olympic athletes about the mental health challenges that they're facing and NFL football players whom you've worked with and what they face? Sure. Um, you know, for many of them, there has always been something of a stigma. You, you come into this arena of professional athleticism uh, feeling as though you've got a great deal of control over what goes on um, in terms of how your body performs and how your mind is able to coordinate with, with your body's performance. And for some of the athletes, um, there, there have been many times actually when that's been challenged, where they feel like their headspace is in some way, shape, or form compromised, and therefore it, it's manifest in their performance. And for them, you know, the stigmatization of uh, seeking out um, help for mental, mental wellness uh, really looms large. And for many of the athletes, they feel as though they need to have uh, a safe space. Uh, they need to have some type of uh, referral and approval for, for seeking out mental health services. And so many of them are able to relate to some of the challenges of these very high profile elite athletes such as Simone and uh, Naomi. Um, and so for them, I think it's given them more opportunity to uh, feel okay about seeking out services and acknowledging that, you know, their performance is dependent upon, you know, their mental health wellness. And how hard is it for folks facing the, that stigma to open up with you about their issues once they do seek services? Well, you know, depending upon how much of a rapport they, they have with me, if they're feeling like they're in a, a safe space, um, and I've gotten to know them over time, and, and of course having access to me, um, it's really been helpful in terms of them wanting to, to see me and to open up about issues that they have. Uh, you know, the issues are numerous for, for elite athletes, for professional athletes, uh, where they know there's a lot on the line in terms of uh, whether or not they can perform well. And if they can perform well, that is pretty much dependent upon how they're feeling mentally. Um, and so making myself accessible has been a key part of, um, you know, athletes accessing <clears throat> what I have to offer. And Biles talked about that pressure to push through mental health challenges. Tell me about that pressure mm -hmm. on athletes to perform on demand. Yeah, I mean, for many of them, um, there's always this, this specter of, of doubt about um, whether or not they can perform well if they are, you know, suffering or struggling with any kind of issues. And so for some, you know, or for actually maybe most, um, there are times during their career when, say, they've um, incurred an injury um, and they find themselves having to push through it. But at that time, their mental space is, has been ser seriously compromised. You know, they were wondering whether or not they have the capability um, to perform 
um, and if whether or not the injuries that they have will will uh, remediate, or if this is going to become some kind of per, um, I don't know, permanent condition, and then with that goes into um, you know their ability to uh, meet the expectations of both themselves and others, and whether or not they can sort of have a life um, either after their professional career or maybe even during where they can seek support of uh, friends and family. Well, so people are not machines and so much about mental health is health and goes into all of that performance. We also spoke recently with 18-year-old Anastasia Zolotic. She just became the first American woman in Olympic history to win gold in Taekwondo. She lives and trains in Colorado Springs. She said the pressure of training and competing is intense, but she feels like she's well-supported. USA Taekwondo, they've made sure that all of us have everything we need when it comes to support. And there are people we're able to talk to and they're willing to sit us down and, you know, have somebody speak to us. And they reach out to us every month and are like, just are you guys all okay? Do you need somebody to speak to? We're more than happy to put you in front of a sports psychologist to speak to and kind of go over stuff you're struggling with. But I personally, I come to my coach just because I feel like I've worked with him long enough to where he understands when I'm upset how to kind of pull me out of that. I'm curious, how do you think about the boundaries between coaching and mental health support? So um, the boundaries between coaching and mental health support are absolutely uh, critical in terms of um, having support from from your coaching staff, um, having them available to, to contact them and helping you to access mental health services. To, to sort of have that tacit approval of um, an athlete's desire to to work with someone like myself with a clinical psychologist. So that's absolutely critical. If, if um, players are feeling as though um, the powers that be, the coaching staff, management, um, sort of have a negative or maybe a, a, a past opinion, opinion against uh, mental health services, that can go a long way to preventing them from having access even if, say, I'm available. And in your own practice, you actually are not that interested in football, and you found that to be one of your strengths working with players, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, when I was first contacted with the, by the NFL, um, I couldn't understand why they were contacting me because I'm not particularly a sports fan. Um, and when I disclosed to them, I really have very little history with the NFL, um, they thought that was actually an asset because for many of the players, the last thing they want to do when they, they see a mental health professional is to talk about their, you know, their career, their professional career, or to have you use, um, you know, professional metaphors when speaking to them about things that, that they think about deeply, personal aspects of their life. So, in fact, that was an asset for me. And I can see that that boundary could be helpful. Carrie Bates, the Olympic swimmer that we heard from earlier, she struggled with substance use disorder after she stopped competing. And I admitted into treatment for substance use for the first time in 2010. And much of my work revolved around my years as an elite athlete. There's so much pressure to be what the world thinks you are to live up to the image that people create for you. I had to learn how to trust people. I was so afraid to tell people my truth because I was afraid it would get leaked to the media or, or people would hear about it. So this public pedestal, it's another piece of the equation. 
Renee Evertes, are there better ways to equip athletes for the pressures that come with that public pedestal? Yes, um, and actually, with um, with the NFL and my experience working with them, they have um, success programs for athletes who are now entering into the uh, arena of professional sports, and we have many opportunities to talk about the mental health struggles that they may have and some of the uh, resources that are out there. I've certainly led a number of workshops with players to talk about uh, mental health and to answer questions that they have. And I think that's sort of gone a long way to to break down some of the barriers of um, mistrust that they have. And what are some of those resources that people can draw on? What are some things that athletes can do when they're feeling those pressures? Well, you know, when when athletes are feeling as though they're they're pretty isolated, um, say from family and friends, they've sort of been um, taken out of their environment, be that a college environment or maybe back at home, um, feeling as though they're pretty isolated, um, we will actually encourage them to contact family or to contact friends. Um, we also encourage them to either explore or extend their interests and hobbies that they have. Um, we have a number of apps in terms of um, uh, finding ways to center yourself, a number of mindfulness apps. Um, and for younger you know, players, they're very much in tune to what's available online. And so that's a way to appeal to them using technology that they feel very comfortable with. Um, and so, you know, we will talk to them about some of the warning signs, if they're not feeling okay, wh- what that looks like for them. Uh, they're very interested in knowing about that. When I would meet with the, the rookies primarily, they had a number of mental health questions. And these were questions that they wondered about for a long time, but never had a forum in which to discuss them. And so uh, for us, we found that to be very successful. Biles' decisions are also generating conversations about the intense public scrutiny that Black athletes and athletes of color often face, in addition to systemic racism. How have those pressures affected athletes you've worked with? Well, you know, for many of them, they feel pretty singled out. Um, they, they sort of have to live in, you know, these two worlds of being somewhat celebrity-like and then just being a run-of-the-mill person of color, if you will, maybe not run-of-the-mill. But um, oftentimes they can be confronted by really harsh criticism on the part of the public. And so for them, it's sort of understanding and reconciling the the sort of two lives that they lead Um, and understanding that uh, when they're off the field, so to speak, or not in the arena, that they're they're just Mm -hmm. like anybody else, but they're also subject to a lot of the biases and systemic racism that's, that's, you know, I want to thank you so much for this conversation. Renee Evertaz, clinical psychologist, was the team psychologist for the Denver Broncos from 2017 to 2020. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. When I-70 shut down in Glenwood Springs because of mud and debris flows, the timing wasn't ideal for a lot of people, like Daryl Proctor and his family from Littleton. Our son, TJ, is going to be a freshman at Colorado Mesa University out in Grand Junction. And the move-in weekend is August 13, 14, 15. So, of course, we've 
planned for that for a while and had set up, you know, well, it's a straight shot on I-70. TJ has to drive his car out there. We'll take one of our vehicles with all of his gear to get him moved in. But uh, when the mudslides and rock slides began happening, we thought we may need to make contingency plans. So that's where we're at. And we're already planning, I think, to take the northern route through Steamboat Springs. Proctor responded to our Twitter call out asking people to share their stories about how the Glenwood Canyon closure is affecting them. His son, TJ, couldn't join us, but is likely not phased by the mudslides for good reason. TJ is a camp counselor with a Boulder Valley YMCA camp uh, outside of Bailey. So he drives 285 and they, of course, uh, where he is at every summer, he's been up there. I believe this is his fourth year now at that camp. He started out as a camper and then became a counselor a couple years ago. But yeah, they get a lot of rain up there. So he's very familiar with all the rain. And he said they've had a lot of mud up there because they're, that camp basically is at the base of a, a mountain outside of Bailey off 285. TJ plans to study nursing when he begins college and maybe join the marching band. Daryl and his wife, Kathy, are hoping to take advantage of the lengthy detour to spend some extra unexpected time with him before saying goodbye. I mean, he'll be driving and, you know, Kathy or I, we may join him in his vehicle for part of the trip and then, you know, be in the other vehicle for the rest of the trip. So there'll be that. And there's even the possibility that we may break the trip up and actually uh, go up a day early and, and stay in Steamboat overnight and then pick up the trip the next day just so it's, you know, we're not on the road for, you know, as much as nine hours straight trying to get over to Grand Junction. Despite the inconvenience, Daryl Proctor says he appreciates what the CDOT crews are going through trying to make I-70 passable again through Glenwood Canyon. It's going to be interesting to see how long it takes CDOT to, you know, fix the road. I really feel for them. I think, you know, I'm just amazed, quite frankly, they've been able to keep it open at all uh, over the past month or so with everything that's been going on. I think, you know, kudos to them. And we'll see what happens here, you know. Obviously, they are going to want to get this done before winter comes. That's Daryl Proctor. He'll be driving the long detour through around Glenwood Canyon from Littleton to Grand Junction with his wife, Kathy, while they take their son, TJ, to Colorado Mesa University this month. If your life or livelihood has been affected by the shutdown of I-70, share your story. Email coloradomatters at CPR.org. That's coloradomatters at CPR.org. More than 40 million people rely on Colorado River in the West, and every drop is used. But with climate change, there's less water to go around. To try to avoid a multi-state legal battle over this precious resource, Colorado is considering one idea to keep more water in the river. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports. In the southwest county of Gunnison, farmers and ranchers rely on water that would otherwise end up in the Colorado River. Drought has plagued the area for more than 20 years, so this water is more valuable than ever. So what rancher Bill Parker is about to do seems a little crazy. We're going to send the water that we could be using to irrigate our fields downstream. Parker is standing next to a creek that feeds the Colorado River. He's about to shut this water off from his pastures. He does that by cranking down the small metal door of a gate that sits in the water. Now that it's closed, this water will stay in the river and Parker gets paid to do it. If they're paying us more than we think the value is of the production, 
it's a no-brainer to do it. What Parker just did, some see as a potential solution to a huge problem. The Colorado River has less water in it than it did a century ago, for a lot of reasons. Climate change is a big one, but this river still needs to supply water to millions of people across multiple states. Mexico uses the water too. To me, it's kind of like the frontier of how are we going to make this work? Millions of people depend on the same water that flows by us. My goal is I want to figure out how do we have the production that we're used to and send more water down the creek. Could an idea like this be scaled up, way up? That's what Colorado water officials are trying to figure out. See, an environmental group paid Parker to keep water in the river for fish and ecosystem health. But the state wants more water to try and avoid a multi-state legal battle over who gets how much of the Colorado River. If the state could buy water from people like Parker, it could help. But Parker knows some don't like the idea. Ranchers, at the end of the day, they want to have the water to do what they do. And if that is in danger, of course they're going to be nervous about it. So why does the state need more water? Under a 100-year-old water-sharing agreement, Colorado is required to keep a certain amount of water in the river for other states to use. But with climate change, extended drought, and overuse of the system, this is getting harder for Colorado to pull off. Lake Powell on the Utah-Arizona border is where Colorado stores the water they have to send downstream. Bad news? Powell just hit its lowest level on record. Unless we have some sort of uh, hydrologic miracle, we're going to be in trouble pretty quickly. We need to scramble. There's no question about it. That's John McLeod, head lawyer at the Upper Gunnison River Water Conservancy District. He understands why Colorado could use a tool like this to buy more water, but he's worried it won't be fair. He's afraid the state will go after some water users more than others. An acre foot of water in the metro Denver area is worth thousands and thousands of dollars, where in this part of the country it may be two or three hundred dollars. The state says that's one of the big questions they're trying to answer as they study if a program like this is even possible. That's what they're doing right now, and it will likely be years until any formal program is adopted, if ever. Demand management is a very difficult concept. It's got so many challenges, not the least of which, of course, is the funding. The state would need millions of dollars to buy this water. And how would they put a price on its worth to someone who makes a living off of it? Bill Trampy is a third-generation rancher in Gunnison County. He doesn't believe the state could afford to pay what he'd lose if he gave up his water. It's got to be more than the initial hay crop. What am I going to do with my cows? Am I going to sell them? If I sell them, there goes a cattle generation's worth of genetics. So I don't know how you pay me for that. Becky Mitchell is the director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. She says Trampy's concerns are exactly what the state is looking at as they decide if a program like this could work. That being said, it's a voluntary program. If it was something that didn't work for you or your operations, you would not have to make that choice. But there might not be a choice in the future. Mitchell says if Colorado can no longer send enough water downstream, people with water rights across the state might be forced to cut their water use, and they might not get paid for the loss. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Police officers who don't intervene when a fellow cop is doing something wrong are finding themselves on the wrong end of the law in Colorado. It's because of the law enforcement reform bill that took effect a year ago, aimed at creating accountability. CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry is investigating this. She spoke with my co-host Ryan Warner. Allison, we are talking about the Police Integrity, Transparency and Accountability Act, 
also known as Senate Bill 217. Remind us what it does. So it passed amid the police reform protests last summer. Actually, literally, they were voting on it while there was a protest going on outside the Capitol and you could hear the protesters outside. Mm. It puts greater rules around the use of force by police officers. It makes it illegal for law enforcement officers to use chokeholds when they arrest someone. It makes it easier for civilians to sue officers personally for wrongdoing. I remember that being controversial. Very controversial. And it requires police officers who witness misconduct by another officer on duty to intervene. They either have to prevent, stop their fellow officer from using physical force that exceeds what's allowed, and they have to go back and report it to a boss. A duty to intervene. Duty to intervene. You analyzed all 22 state judicial districts and data from the state judicial branch in general to see how the law is being enforced and what kind of difference it might actually be making on the ground. What did you find? I wanted to see if any officers had been charged with anything under Senate Bill 217. And it turns out the failure to intervene was the only new charging code created, not to get totally in the weeds, but they only created that as a new law. So in other words, things like assault, excessive force, they were always against the law. But if officers were charged with that for on-duty conduct, I wanted to ask the DA if they did it because of 217 or they did it for other reasons. Mm. So it required lots and lots of conversations with DAs across the state and some open records requests. And I did find out that Seven charges have been filed against five officers in the last year on duty to intervene specifically. So okay. that's a new law, and this is all new. These officers would not have been charged before for this. Five officers, seven charges total. We'll get into those. Mm-hmm. Um, have DAs, though, filed any other charges against officers, I mean, in addition to that failure to intervene? Yeah. So, you know, they're pretty open about how Senate Bill 217 has changed the scrutiny they give to police departments and also that the police departments give to the officers and the officers give to each other so that the whole bill has just brought more awareness about misconduct across the whole criminal justice system. You know, for example, there was a a strangulation charge filed in Weld County. A DA, the DA there filed a charge against a cop who used a chokehold. Well, chokeholds are now illegal. There's not a new charging code for chokeholds, so he charged him with strangulation. Mm -hmm. There are two cases of cops who misused their tasers who've been recently charged with assault. One's in Boulder, one's in Idaho Springs. You know, that Idaho Springs case, that officer's already resigned, but he deployed his taser on a 75-year-old man when he shouldn't have. And I asked that prosecutor, Clear Creek County DA Heidi McCollum, if she filed those charges under the new police law or if she would have done it anyway. Yeah, I think the answer to that is that, you know, I, I certainly hope we would have. It's hard to say, right, what we would have done without both law enforcement and my office being on this heightened level of scrutiny and also a heightened level of observing officers' actions. At the end of the day, I will say that 217 has certainly made um, officers' actions more more pronounced. A reference again to the Senate bill Mm -hmm. and that word scrutiny there. Uh, There was another case just last week in Aurora, Allison. Yes, that was a big one. Aurora police officer Francine Martinez was charged with failure to intervene, failure to report use of force. Investigators say she stood by while her colleague, Officer John Hobart, beat up 29-year-old Kyle Vinson while arresting him on July 23rd. Vinson was unarmed. He was stopped on trespassing complaints and was wanted on a warrant. Investigators say Hobart struck him 13 times and tried to strangle him. 
And that officer faces felony charges for that arrest. And he has since resigned from the Aurora Police Department. Really difficult video to watch. Very difficult. And I spoke with Vincent, who is recovering from those injuries, on Tuesday. And it was Martinez he talked about not doing anything to stop the guy beating on him. He didn't even really talk too much about the guy who actually... Did the beating. Did the beating. Yeah, I was kind of shocked she didn't intervene, saying just stop. Just say stop. It's like it gets to a point to where it's almost like a brainwash, like they've... They just learned to be okay with it, like as her, she could just see that happening and not to say stop. What else have you found? The number of assault charges filed for on-duty conduct is interesting. You know, it was more rare. It happened before, but honestly, there were cities and counties settling massive lawsuits for wrongdoing, and officers were not facing any accountability at all criminally in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Adams County District Attorney Brian Mason's office was among the first to file failure to intervene charges against some officers last year. That case was a fight in the Adams County Jail. One deputy beat up an inmate and two stood by and watched. The two bystanders are charged with failure to intervene and the third one faces assault charges. This is what Brian Mason said. I think it's important for us as a profession to say, not only will we not tolerate this kind of behavior, but we won't tolerate people standing by and watching it. You also spoke with State Representative Leslie Harrod, Democrat from Denver, who sponsored the police reform bill that is uh, at play here. What did she have to say? She says it's clear that police accountability is working, but she lamented that people are still suffering at the hands of police. It is unfortunate that citizens have to go through such traumatic experiences for us to be able to test out this law. I want to say, I think her and I talked about this at length, that There's always going to be bad seeds in police departments, and there may not even be a bad seed. It may just be an officer who's hot from the last call he or she came from, somebody who maybe has something bad just happened, and they have to go to another call, and they're not acting appropriately on the job. And I think the whole issue is there needs to be accountability there, because there's very rarely going to be seven, five, or four, or three officers who respond that are all in that same mindset. There may be one, and the other two can check that other person, Mm. and both protect the the person who may be, you know, victimized at the hands of police, but also check the person who is about to do it and save their job as well. So I think Representative Herod hopes this law makes a difference, that there are always going to be moments where police are not going to act the way they're supposed to. But if other people know that they're going to be held accountable for their colleagues' actions, that they may step up more quickly. And what about body camera footage here? Yeah, so there's some additional context Body cams are required for all officers in 2023. But she did say that if officers have body cameras now, and a lot of them do, a lot of the agencies already have them, they have to release that body camera footage within 21 days of an investigation, which is what you saw in Aurora, how it all happened very quickly. The arrest of Kyle Vinson happens on Friday. You know, he gets beat up. They work through the weekend. They announced that the officers had been arrested on Tuesday within a week. I I mean, I've never seen anything work that fast. So I think that that's evidence that this has changed some. One more bit of context before we let you go. Mm -hmm. Colorado's law was really among the first police reform bills passed in the country following the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota, right? Right. You know, but at the end of the year, there were nearly 100 bills passed at state levels addressing police accountability. Nationally, though, people I've talked to who work at like sort of national interest groups still talk about Senate Bill 217 as one of the bigger ones because it was so sweeping. It touched on a lot of different areas. It wasn't just one thing. Thanks so much, Allison, for this context. 
I appreciate being asked to come on, Ryan. Thank you. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry talking with Ryan Warner. Allison's tracking the impact of Colorado's police reform law, among other things. It holds officers accountable if they don't intervene when they see one of their colleagues engaged in misconduct. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado gave women the right to vote in 1893. Getting this right took a few attempts. In 1876, the year Colorado was admitted to the Union, the authors of the state constitution did not include equal voting rights in the document. Instead, they said, let's put it to a vote next year. Susan B. Anthony traveled the state in support, yet that referendum failed by a wide margin. But Colorado women continued to organize over the next 16 years, so much so the next time men voted on equal suffrage, the measure passed by 6,000 votes statewide, causing the Delta Independent to wonder about women's new power. Many questions arise as to what effect it will have. How will they vote? What percentage will vote? Will they want office? Yes, the very next year, three women were elected to the state legislature. A Colorado History Postcard from Colorado Public Radio. How did Americans come to associate free time in the outdoors with tent camping and roasting marshmallows over a fire? Phoebe Young is a history professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. She traced the history of people camping in the U.S. for fun, politics, and necessity. Her new book tells the story, Camping Grounds, Public Nature in American Life from the Civil War to the Occupy Movement. We spoke in May. Thanks for being here, Professor. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. You wrote this book after your friend went camping for the first time in her adult life, and she told you about a conversation that she and her father had. How did that spark you to tell this story? So my friend really enjoyed, she went to Zion National Park and enjoyed camping as an adult, and so went back and asked her dad, why didn't we go camping when I was a child? And his answer was that uh, we were poor and that when, when you were poor, sleeping on the ground is what you had to do. And when he went on vacation, and now that he had enough money, he didn't want to do that anymore. And that kind of sparked my interest in, in thinking about the ways in which the camping landscape is not the same for everybody, that people have different interests, different experiences in the outdoors. Obviously, camping is not a universal form of recreation, and there are a lot of different reasons why people do it. So you divide camping into three categories, and we'll talk about each of them in more depth But briefly, what are those three kinds of camping? Well, recreational camping is the kind we obviously sort of tend to think about most, uh, foremost in our mind, right? The out under the stars, the s'mores, the campfire. So that one is is the most obvious. But when you think about the practice of sleeping outside, we look in history and also see people who slept outside for functional reasons, um, whether that was because they were migrating or there were no indoor lodgings to be had or in modern times, right, unsheltered folks. But then we also see people who camped out for a cause to protest or to lobby the government and sort of testify um, to their presence in public space. So let's start with the history of recreational camping, the kind of go away to the woods for fun kind of camping. I actually really enjoy this type of camping, but every time I go, it strikes me that it is kind of a weird activity. Setting up and taking down a campsite is a lot of work, and so is cooking on a camp stove. So where does recreational camping come from? So there are a number of origins, uh, but at its 
kind of the most uh, basic sense in the sort of post-Civil War era, people wanted to reconnect with the land. There was, you know, of course, the founding of the United States, very much connected to the agrarian world, to owning land and working it with your own labor, have a productive farm, um, became less and less possible as the country industrialized, people moved to cities. And so in a way, camping became an attempt to sort of connect with the nation and American land, um, but this time through leisure, right, to be out in the outdoors doing that work, but doing it as a way of escaping the city, as well as kind of, you know, uh, uh, in the same ways we think about it as kind of rejuvenating yourself out in the outdoors. And this kind of camping, it had a few seminal moments, historical movements that really propelled it forward. Loop campgrounds, a bunch of permanent campsites along a loop of road, changed the game in the 1920s. So tell me about the designer. Absolutely. So this fellow named Emilio Meineke, he was a plant pathologist for the U.S. Forest Service, and he got called into Sequoia National Park to help them figure out why the trees were dying. And what he found was that it was campers who were nailing their tent stakes onto the somewhat shallow roots of the redwood sequoia trees. Uh, And so he designed a campground in order to minimize the damage that campers had on the trees. This is the Loop Campground. If you've ever been to a state park or a a national park, Loop A, Site 12, um, that all dates back to that moment in the late 20s when they were trying to both protect the trees and create greater access to make that work of camping easier, that each site had a picnic table, a fire ring, and a driveway to accommodate all those new automobile campers. Outdoor recreation and, of course, camping, they're important to Colorado's economy today. So what can you tell us about the history of recreational camping here? So Colorado was one of the, you know, uh, destination spots in the late 19th century, in the 1920s, right? And still, of course, for wonderful camping in in the outdoors. Um, What I can say is that actually one of the prototypes even before Emilio Meineke's Loop Campground um, happened right here in Squirrel Creek, um, which is a place in the San Isabel National Forest just a little bit west of Pueblo, where a designer, he called himself a recreation engineer, developed a kind of prototype of that Loop Camp ground that got forgotten for a few years, but then picked back up. And so Colorado, in many ways, is part of the progenitor of this sort of interest in recreational camping. Oh, wow. So in your book, John Muir represents a romantic attitude toward recreational camping that still exists. And he was the first president of the Sierra Club. He lobbied successfully for Yosemite National Park. What role did he play in shaping attitudes about recreational camping? So John Muir had a very particular style when he was in outdoors, particularly in the Sierras, right, the place he made very famous, that he felt that the best way to connect with nature was to be very simple, to, you know, he would often hike off into the woods with just a hunk of cheese and and maybe a a half moldy um, lump of bread and no tent. And that was, he felt, getting closer to nature. But he also, in those spaces, saw indigenous people who were sort of being more interactive with the land, being interdependent with it, living from the land, but also preserving it. But he felt that that was not the way he wanted to connect with nature. And a lot of people follow that the the idea that to really resonate with the lessons of nature, that you had to be kind of apart from it rather than living on it or working on it. And so that you start to see the division between leisure in nature and labor in nature. And John Muir gives us a kind of um, bellwether for tracking that. 
And that division was codified in some park systems where indigenous people were removed from land to make space for those. How do you see those attitudes in park systems in some ways continue to undermine indigenous people's relationships with land and natural resources? Well, I think that Part of the issue is that because they've become so clearly these playgrounds for us, right, To these are the places we go to recreate, to get away from labor, and they're supposed to be preserved in these kind of pristine states, right, that we believed that they were pristine primeval wilderness, right, and they were not peopled spaces. Of course, as you're saying, indigenous folks had to be removed in order to create this unpeopled pristine wilderness. And so trying to bring back a more um, kind of complex relationship with the land uh, that many Native groups practice, it comes into conflict with the recreational landscape. Well, let's move on a little bit to talking about some of the economic considerations of land as well. Modern recreational camping, we can't talk about it without talking about obsession with gear. And you think that the consumer market for camping grew out of the environmental movement. But you also think that there's some irony there. Can you unpack that for us? Sure. So obviously gear has been a part of camping for a very long time, but I think the modern consumer market for outdoor gear really comes out of the 1960s and and 1970s. And partly what was driving it is a new attitude towards preserving the land and wanting to live lightly on it, right? Not make a lot of impact, leave no trace as it would become. So then instead of cutting down trees to build a fire, you have to bring a propane stove with you. Instead of cutting down boughs to soften your bed, you bring an air mattress, right? Um, Or you bring various forms of synthetic products to keep you warm uh, and to keep the rain off. And so in that way, in some ways, this this attempt to preserve the land has generated a heavy load elsewhere uh, in terms of producing these synthetic products. And the pandemic, it drove up interest in camping and even demand for campers and RVs. Do you think the pandemic brought long-term changes to recreational camping? Well, it's hard to make a prediction about that. It's a problem with studying the past and everyone asks (laughs) you to predict the future. Um, But I certainly see that it's accelerated some things that have been happening in the last um, decade in terms of a a kind of renewed interest in camping, particularly among a younger generation, um, of being able to reserve campsites, right? I mean, I think that's one thing we've seen in the pandemic is that it's pretty hard to come by a camping reservation these days. Uh, And so, you know, the idea of just heading out and, you know, plopping down in a space is harder to do spontaneously. Uh, And so I think the pandemic has accelerated that sense that that this is a a place where we reserve a particular kind of site, and whether that's a national park site or a uh, kind of more backcountry site um, or a glamping uh, tent, right, that everybody can kind of choose your own adventure. A lot of ways to recreational camp. I am speaking with Phoebe Young, an associate professor of history at CU Boulder. Her new book is called Camping Grounds, Public Nature in American Life from the Civil War to the Occupy Movement. Let's talk about political camping. You spent a lot of time researching the Occupy movement back in 2011. Thousands of people setting up camp, so to speak, in public spaces, mostly in the center of big cities to protest economic injustices they saw. What's the history of camping as protest? So we can trace the history of encamped protests uh, back to the post-Civil War era, at least. 
So, uh, for example, Civil War veterans, Union Army veterans, uh, formed a lobbying and kind of veterans group that encamped on Washington, D.C. and other cities, in part to lobby for pensions from the government. And so they used their camping and kind of calling people to remember their service in the war to create sort of momentum um, to have veterans' pensions. We see that again in the 1890s and in the 1930s, where unemployed people camped out um, for various causes, mostly to get the government to uh, help them out in desperate times. And then we see it throughout the 1960s uh, and early 70s, protesting racial injustice, as well as uh, uh, sort of the Vietnam War, and in the 80s about homelessness. And then so Occupy is, was really kind of only the, the latest in a long line of encamped protests. And you point out that occupiers insisted they weren't camping, they were occupying. What's the distinction? So my sense is that they are pushing back against recreational camping. They didn't want people thinking they were out there for fun, but rather that they were petitioning the government for redress of grievances. And that the tent, while a very important part of their protest to sort of display their their permanence and their resilience, that they were not going away, but that it was something different than recreational camping. And occupiers also drew a distinction between what they were doing and folks who were camping out because they were experiencing homelessness. Um, In downtown Denver, at least, the Occupy movement was deemed a public health concern because of scabies and people in the encampments were not all protesters. What are your thoughts on that? So it's pretty difficult to tell uh, that line, right, between uh, functional camping uh, and political camping, right? Occupiers were certainly doing it in order to make a point, but they were also, for many of them, living there and encountered many of the same challenges that unsheltered people encounter when having to live in public spaces outdoors, such as the lack of sanitation um, or municipal services. And you write about how the Occupy movement sparked a wider and sustained discussion about the meaning and legality of sleeping outside. What does it mean to sleep outside? Why can't you do it in the woods and it's sanctioned and not in a city square with protest signs? What is your takeaway on those sorts of distinctions? So the... I mean, the the shortest point is that it rests upon a long history of creating those distinctions because in the 19th century, those distinct it was a much more fluid landscape um, to to sort of decide who was doing this as a recreational versus a functional um, kind of activity. But part of the sort of creating the infrastructure for recreational camping made that kind of activity seem wholesome, normal, and suggested that the other forms of sleeping outside were marginal uh, and even threatening or transgressive. Uh, And so the sort of trying to police those boundaries is part of how uh, that came up in the sense of that people believed, including um, Congress people who were investigating the Occupy site in Washington, D.C., said that, you know, they, they didn't understand that, you know, how could you camp if you weren't doing it for leisure? It didn't make sense to them. You describe one more type of camping in your book, and that's functional camping or sleeping outside because you don't have an indoor place to sleep. It's visible and a polarizing issue, especially during the pandemic, as growing numbers of people face housing instability. You're a history professor. How does that historical lens help us understand current attitudes about functional camping? So I think that the fact that functional camping, you know, used to be the only kind of camping, right? Um, I would say in the early 19th century and before, you know, lots of people camped outside, 
as they were traveling. It's what you did when there was not indoor lodging in between your destinations. Um, but over time, as recreational camping became much more the norm, the mainstream, uh, and early recreational campers in particular tried to distance themselves from what were called in the late 19th century tramps. Right? And people worried about what these tramps who were thrown out of work by economic downturns, uh, who did not have uh, stable jobs and served the, the kind of mobile labor force, particularly for the West. Um, but people worried what, what they represented for the country as kind of rootless um, individuals, kind of sleeping willy-nilly wherever they wanted. And so you, you can see in, in a sense that there are similar attitudes over a century ago. Uh, and those progressed over time as recreational camping became even more popular, more endorsed by the state, um, by the government, right, who provided all this infrastructure, that all of a sudden, or rather, not all of a sudden, but in, in a gradual but growing way, campers who camped in non-designated spaces um, for non-recreational reasons came to seem suspicious or worrisome just based on the activity that they were doing. And you have looked back over a lot of time. You have studied so many decades of camping for so many reasons in the United States. So before we go, I wonder if there is a main takeaway that you have found in your research of just the changing attitudes towards many types of camping in the U.S. So I think I would say the, the biggest takeaway really is that, you know, public space and public nature is something that is owned by uh, all of us uh, in the U.S. Uh, and so thinking about how that space gets used, who uses that space, how do we share that, how do we preserve that moving forward as a collective space, um, not just to preserve the material nature, but of the, the ground for gathering uh, is, is really one of the big takeaways. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Phoebe Young is an associate professor of history at CU Boulder. She's the author of Camping Grounds, Public Nature in American Life, From the Civil War to the Occupy Movement. We spoke in May. Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. We know it's not possible to listen every day, so be sure to tune in Sunday mornings at 10 for best of segments from the week. We'd like to hear more from you on Twitter at Colorado Matters or email CPR, Colorado Matters at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.